Good morning, Memphis. Thank you for spending some of your Saturday morning with me. I'm Sana, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Saturday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, we'll learn about their motivations, inspirations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab a cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. Now, November is a busy, busy month. Of course, there was an election. <laughs> um, November is also prime holiday season. We are in the swing of things. Is there Thanksgiving? Not from what I see in the stores because all the Christmas decorations are already out. And November is also National Adoption Awareness Month. So you may not have known that November is also National Adoption Awareness Month, but this month actually began in 1995. And even before then, there was a National Adoption Week. Um, and there was even an adoption week that was started in Massachusetts before then in 1976. So we've had several decades of attention really to increase awareness around children and youth in the foster care system. And even if you didn't know that November is National Adoption Awareness Month, you probably know someone who is adopted, maybe someone in your family um, is adopted, or now that you're tuned in to Let's Grab Coffee, you know me and I'm adopted from Korea. And in fact, experts estimate that 100 million Americans are touched by adoption in some sort of way. And while Adoption Awareness Month has traditionally been a way to promote adoption, um, not only of children in foster care, um, it has also been approached as a way to promote adoption kind of more generally. I really wanted to open up the conversation and talk more about some of the complexities as we think about adoption. So not just this idea of like, hey, let's adopt, right? But what are some other aspects of adoption that we should be thinking about? So to do that, our first guest today is Dr. Katie Bozek. Dr. Bozek received, received her PhD in family and child ecology from Michigan State University, and she is a licensed marriage and family therapist. She has owned and operated a solo private practice for the past 11 years, where she works with children, adolescents, adults, couples, and families. Dr. Bozek has spoken on various panels and in workshops on topics of racism, adoption, the child welfare system, and also identity. Now, Dr. Bozek is also a Korean adoptee, and we met through the Korean American Adoptee Adoptive Family Network, or shorthand CON, because that's a mouthful. And in 2018, Dr. Bozek stepped into the role as Executive Director for CON. And CON is a national nonprofit organization that serves to support those in the adoption constellation through education, dialogue, and support. So welcome, Dr. Bozek. Hi, Sana. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I'm so glad to have you here with me this morning. How are you doing? I am doing pretty well. We are having a string of very warm days in Michigan, so it's been very, very nice here. Yes, that's lovely. We love a nice, unseasonably warm weather, right, for yes. November. 
yes. it helps in getting Christmas lights up when it's not <laughs> snowy. <laughs> yes, see, I told you we're in the swing of holiday season. Um, well, of course, you know, it's National Adoption Awareness Month, and adoption has been in the headlines, I feel like, a lot this year, maybe more than normal, or maybe just because it's 2020, everything seems even more heightened. But earlier this year, we saw YouTuber Micah Stauffer, who rehomed her internationally adopted son from China, and then Abby Johnson, um, who's at the RNC, said it was smart for police to racially profile her adopted brown son. And then, of course, most recently, Amy Coney Barrett's nomination and confirmation hearings, there was a lot of attention to her family, um, particularly her internationally adopted children from Haiti. So adoption has been, I feel like, really foregrounded in the news a lot throughout this year. Can I speak to that? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Why? Because you had, you had said it might be because things have just been so heightened. Mm -hmm. I think all of the attention has been paid because adoptees have called people out on it. Ooh, talk more about that. And so it's so, I think all of the women that you referenced, it would be commonplace for them to think those things, to mm -hmm. talk about those things. And to just, you know, easy to say to their friends um, and people within their circle. Mm -hmm. Easier to, I think, um, think about rehoming, mm -hmm. which is a horrible, horrible term. Um, but as adoptees have grown into exercising the right to use their voice to speak up, to call people out on there is more to adoption than just the day that the paperwork is signed and mm -hmm. we go live with you. Um, more adoptees are um, calling people out on those types of statements and what they mean and the multi-layers to them. Mm -hmm. So and then that makes news because adoptees are raising their voices. Mm -hmm. uh, I love that you bring in this point of adoptees really using their voices um, to say no adoption just isn't the day that the paperwork is finalized, which I think has been a big misconception and obviously a big focus on this month traditionally right just thinking about that actual process of okay the adoption, you know, is complete. Um, and that's certainly something that most attention has been paid to like actual getting the child into your family but then okay what happens after that um so you talked about there are more kind of layers to adoption could you talk more about what some of those layers are yeah um layers and process i think i've been using them interchangeably but now i'm thinking that they are different because adoption is a process it is a lifelong process of understanding and re-understanding how we came to be mm -hmm. and all of our experiences along the way. And when I say how we came to be, that means how we came to be in our adoptive family, but also how we came to be in our biological family, whether we actually find that out or not. Mm. Filling in the holes, figuring out, um, and figuring out how to live with the I don't know, right? And that is a process and a journey over time. And we do that not um, individually, but relationally as young kids talking to our parents about these questions, our thoughts, and then our parents being able to either answer and acknowledge and have a conversation or shutting it out. Mm. And shutting it out doesn't necessarily mean that they just turn their back and we don't talk. Sometimes it's fidgeting 
looking around, giving off the vibe that this is not a question I should probably be asking, mm -hmm. right? And then that continues over time. And then the next layer becomes, I think layer, I think about it now as developmentally. Like, okay, so as a five-year-old, what that means versus a 15-year-old and trying to have that interaction or comprehend all of those questions versus a 25-year-old, 35, just on and on and on. Yeah, I like this idea of adoption as a lifelong process. I think that's a way that um, it often hasn't been talked about. But if we think about just families in general, right, these questions about family belonging and how we understand where we fit in um, unfolds throughout a lifetime for all of us. Um, we can even think about, you know, family secrets, <laughs> even among families where there's not, you know, adoption involved. Um, so just thinking about what adoption then adds to that family dynamic. So what should um, adoptive parents be thinking about developmentally? You mentioned, you know, over time, some of this kind of shifts or changes, um, what might parents or what should parents be thinking about in regards to that, those life stage changes? Yeah, you know, I actually, it's funny, I just got done talking um, to a group of adoptive parents about um, uh, adoption through the teen years mm -hmm. and different struggles, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, as I was putting it together, I was thinking it's not, yes, adoptees struggle, but during those teen years, it's not necessary. I think for me, it wasn't necessarily, that was a struggle, but not having anyone to talk to about it was the biggest struggle. Mm -hmm. Having to do it on my own, not feeling that anyone would understand or even listen based on previous interactions, right? So for adoptive parents, for parents in general, the most important thing is communication, is validation, mm -hmm. is, um, oh, what is another word? Nope, just about, just validation. <laughs> uh, validation and making space empathy, that was the word. I had empower in my head and it was not empower, empathy, validation and empathy. Mm -hmm. Because over the years, all adoptees are trying to do, I, I know I'm saying all, it sounds so simplistic, but it's not, is figure out how to navigate through loss. Mm. Navigate through so much loss and ambiguous loss. And that's what happens in the teen years as our brain develops, as we uh, have more social experiences with other people, we start to learn more about the world and we start to put things together and our brain can think differently. And now how do we make sense of this loss? But then how do we talk about it? Who can we talk to about it? Right. And that is where there is a lot of struggle in being able to do that. Mm -hmm. You mentioned this idea of loss. And again, that's something different than how we normally think of the conversations around adoption because it's so much focused or has been traditionally focused on the gains of adoption, um, particularly around adoptive parents, right? And what they gain, um, or even just framing it for adoptees and what they gain, right? So a permanent family or forever family. So can you speak more to the losses that are intricately a part of adoption? Yes, and before I do, remember, forever family is not forever. All adoptees know there's no such thing as a forever family. You even mentioned like Micah earlier this week, she rehomed her son. That was not their forever family, right? So again, it's these things that uh, are commonplace and talking that only adoptees will pick up on. 
or it might be something that, oh, I'm not quite sure how to feel about that because that doesn't match my experience. And that's even with loss, right? So in trying to figure out what have I lost? And that also is in the teen years and the adult years too. Like, oh, well, if, if I lived in Korea, if I was not adopted, I would not be speaking English. Mm. I remember that moment, right? Yeah. I remember realizing, oh, I lost that. Or, you know, Hugh and I were just talking about K-beauty and taking <laughs> care of our skin. And like, I was talking about how I just don't know. And even in high school, it was, how do I take care of my skin? How do I do my makeup? Because my face does not look like the other people's faces that I see. <laughs> and all these tutorials or ways that my friends say, that's not going to go well with my eyes, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, so it's not just loss of family. It's all these other ones that you try to figure out too, right? Mm -hmm. And even, um, one more example, when I found a Korean hairstylist in my area, I feel like it was life-changing because it was someone who knew what to do with my hair mm -hmm. and because I went through some not so good haircuts because of my very thick Korean hair. <laughs> and so just even that loss of being able to talk through with someone else, just simple, seemingly simple things. If I can't do that, then how am I supposed to talk about losing birth parents, heritage, um, medical? So when I, I have three kids, so when I got pregnant or when we were thinking about having kids, there's so much anxiety around, I have no idea what kind of medical history I'm passing on. Mm -hmm. That is a loss. Uh, recently, when I say recently, in the past several years, um, another loss has come up, which is citizenship, because mm -hmm. we have not, um, there's a time period where it was not guaranteed, it was not an automatic. So mm -hmm. uh, adoptees, international adoptees, when they came to the US, parents had to uh, do a separate paperwork, separate process in order to get them citizenship. They did not realize it was not automatic. And so there are many adoptees out there who now are realizing that they don't have citizenship here and they're not a, citizenship, a citizen in Korea. So that is another loss. Um, what is it? The Adoptee Citizenship Rights Act is uh, one of those things that's trying to correct that, um, to give citizenship to adoptees who are um, left in that gray area. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so many losses that really, again, unfold over time um, that can seem very, that kind of come out of nowhere almost, right? So as you're, you kind of think about it differently as you're growing up, as you're even experiencing different things, right? So you gave the example of, you know, thinking about having children, right? And that is, you know, another layer of loss that maybe you hadn't thought about previously, um, but now is a new life stage for you. And this is another way where you're thinking, well, if I had not have been adopted, then I would probably, you know, know these things or be able to answer these questions. Um, but some of these kind of more micro or minor losses, they accumulate over time. So as you were mentioning, you know, it's kind of like you feel, who can I really talk to when I, something as simple as I, I can't do my makeup, like, you know, my, like my mom or like my friends, right? Mm -hmm. So these kind of minor ways that we feel excluded over time. 
Um, I know something that we didn't really talk about directly, but in the case of kind of these headline stories around adoption, they're all also transracial adoptions, right? Mm -hmm. And so when we think about adoption, um, you know, the majority of international adoptions are transracial. So children adopted into families of a different race, typically children of color being adopted into white families. Um, and I'm wondering, could you speak a little bit about what the layer of being transracially adopted then brings into the kind of family dynamic? It, mm, that's a really big question, Sana. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because it's, because then you are a multiracial family mm -hmm. and too many parents do not realize that. Mm -hmm. I get it. They're focused on just bringing a baby home, right? And that was very much the rhetoric, you know, years ago um, when adopting. And I, I hope that it's changed. I, I believe that it has in terms of adoption agencies you know, saying that it is important to stay connected to birth culture, having um, resources and support around racial and ethnic identity development, but it's not enough. It's just, it's not enough. Um, and quite honestly, I don't know what would be enough because it encompasses, so it encompasses everything. You are a person of color living in this world. And I remember years ago when I was doing um, research in grad school, you know, this idea of survival skills, parents not being able to teach their kids survival skills, right? And I think about that so much now, like how, yeah, I was not given, how am I supposed to recognize racism if I don't know, right? So in high school, I think about some, some past incidents and I remember like feeling uncomfortable and laughing it off because I had no idea what else to do, Yeah. right? Yeah. And couldn't even, you know, point to it as something that was not, that was racist or racially driven. Mm -hmm. And so, again, big question, trying to make sure that I'm answering <laughs> it in all the ways because then it turns into, uh, not turns into, but it is that racial and ethnic identity development. How do you see yourself as a person of color, right? And what does that mean for you? And what does that mean for how you interact with others? Mm. It is... I think my dissertation years ago, one of the main things that has always stuck with me was I interviewed 15 Korean born uh, female adoptees on their racial and ethnic identity development. Mm -hmm. And all of them talked about these moments of after they moved out of their, their family home and went to college or went out and moved into their own place or something where they're outside of their, their community, outside of their family. And this realization, these experiences of being treated as how they look, mm -hmm. as an Asian person, and not as so-and-so's daughter, mm -hmm. not as so-and-so's sister, not as, oh yes, we know her, she was adopted from Korea, like she gets a pass, right? So. It was interesting listening to them navigate through that and what happened. But that was well into, I mean, not well into, but early adulthood, right? Um, and so it, that's why I say it encompasses because then it turns into what am, how am I going to continue my life? How am I going to educate myself? What does that mean for any children that I have? What does that mean for 
all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So me again, just thinking about what you said earlier, this kind of lifelong process of adoption, um, but just this lifelong process of really thinking about, you know, where do I belong and in what ways, right? And then what does that mean for me when I'm not under the cover of my kind of parents, right, household or just being known within a community? What does it mean when people are just looking at me as you know, this Asian woman, right? And all the different assumptions that come along with that. Absolutely. So I wanna talk with you more about Khan and some of its services to the adoption community. So Khan is the Korean American Adoptee Adoptive Family Network. It was founded in 1998 um, after um, a group of adoptees, adoptive parents, um, the Korean consulate in San Francisco, and Friends of Adoptees in Sacramento got together for a leadership summit. And from that, there was a commitment to gather each year mm -hmm. uh, because they realized that they could learn a lot from each other and that they were operating in silos. Mm -hmm. And so each year they have hosted, Khan has hosted an annual conference and that has traveled from city to city with the idea of connecting with the specific identity, or excuse me, specific adoptee community and specific Korean American community in whatever city that was chosen. Ah, okay. And so I wanted to ask, so with the, with Khan, has it been, um, programming created by adoptive parents, by adoptees, by Korean community, or who is kind of involved in kind of that direction of the programming? Yeah, so in the beginning, it was, there was a specific leadership conference team that would be in each city. So they tried to identify an adoptive parent and an adult adoptee and a younger adoptee and someone from the Korean American community to serve as, um, the planners of the conference. So they would actually be in charge of programming and planning and things like that. That, he's, that has evolved over the years. So now we have proposals for the annual conference that come in and then there is a review team. And the review team is made up of um, people around the country who are adoptees, adoptive parents and Korean Americans if we have someone available. You mentioned there are different proposals. So what types of proposals do people typically propose? <laughs> like what are kind yeah. of themes or the big ideas that uh, people within the adoption community really want to learn about? So it differs from year to year. And then there are always proposals about birth search, birth family searching, reunion, and now, lately, the past several years, it's been parenting as an adoptee has been a really big uh, topic. Mm -hmm. And also, I think in the past several years, there's been a, uh, more proposals from uh, adoptees that, adopt, yeah, adoptees that, I, I don't know how to frame it, but we are not always aware of, so multiracial Korean adoptees, mm -hmm. um, adoptees who are deaf. Um, and listening to their experiences and how they've navigated through all the things that I said earlier on top of this other identity mm -hmm. with them. Um, and so the program has really been trying to change or has evolved matching um, some of the social climate, um, political climate, and um, just shifts in, I think, generations of adoptees because those who are adopted 
I don't know, in the past 10 years, they have a very different experience than I did as a kid in the 80s growing mm -hmm. up. How we talk about uh, race, identity, mental health, programs available, adoptive parents and their thoughts on this, um, supports and resources for adoptive parents. Um, so we try to be aware of that um, and also be at the, the forefront of being able to provide um, services that hit all of that. Yeah. So it sounds like not only are adoptees, but also adoptive parents and then potentially even adopted adoptees and their children and families also are really benefiting from having everyone together and kind of benefiting from this programming. Um, so what would you say are some of the takeaways that attendees get from this conference or why is it important in other words? A sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. Support connection. And when I say belonging, meaning I'm not the only one who felt this way, right? I'm not the only one who gets sad about these things. I'm not the only one who wrestles um, with so much, right? Um, and there's support in that and having relationships outside of that, that are it's validating. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. It's validating our experiences, validating who we are. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Bozek, thank you so much for joining us this morning on Let's Grab Coffee. You've shared so much insight into adoption, and I really appreciate you being here with me this morning. Thank you so much, Sana, for having me. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. We're here on Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and today we're talking about adoption. So November is National Adoption Awareness Month. And since many of the adoptions in the US are transracial, so primarily children of color being adopted into white families, I wanted to talk to an expert on adoptive parenting practices and race. So joining me now is Dr. Carla Gore. She is an associate professor of sociology at Kent State University, where she directs the Group Processes Lab. Her work focuses on the racial composition of mixed race groups, examining how race is activated and impacts the performance expectations of diverse group members. She also studies the racial understandings and interactions of white transracially adoptive parents who as the primary caretakers of children of color are required to address race and racism in ways that few other white individuals find necessary. This initial inquiry has expanded, expanded to include parents who manage other types of devalued statuses held by their children, including disabilities and high BMI. Her work has been supported by the National Science Foundation and can be found in outlets including advances in group processes, sociology of race and ethnicity, social science and medicine, and social forces. So welcome, Dr. Gore. Good morning. Thank you for having me today. Yes, yes. Good morning. How are you? I'm well. I feel like I'm managing okay with the, our twin pandemics <laughs> and, and systemic racism and sort of tightening my focus to make sure that I can you know, control what I can control. Uh, yes, absolutely. I love that idea of control what you can control because so much is out of our control. <laughs> <laughs> and we've definitely learned that or been reminded of that this year if we didn't already know it. Yes, yes, we have. 
Yes. So as I mentioned in your bio, um, you know, you said white transracially adoptive parents have to address race and racism. And it seems like this year, especially we're talking about race and racism, right, that is unavoidable, um, particularly in this political climate and with all of the rhetoric, even from our president. Um, but what does this mean for adoptive families? So, you know, in the, in the past several months, there's been a lot of airtime given to white parents who adopt uh, outside yes. of their home. So uh, Justice Barrett has two adopted children from, from Haiti. And also Abby Johnson from the RNC made some statements earlier this year that got a lot of, of airtime. And so I think that this has put a new lens on the parents especially um, mm -hmm. of uh, transracially adopted families. Um, uh, uh, Ibram um, Kendi um, uh, tweeted about Justice Barrett's children, and he got a lot of heat for what he said. He sort of talked about um, colonizers adopting Black children, mm -hmm. uh, called them, you know, savages, and how these parents would um, teach them the ways of white people. He got a lot of heat for that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think he came back later and said, you know, that, that he he that his quote had been misunderstood but i think for race scholars for us we understand the issue is much bigger than the justice or abby johnson or any sort of sensationalist um, activities that white parents of children of color might engage in really this is about racism and yeah. racism is bigger than these you know these single parents these um Racism is, is insidious and it permeates all institutions, including the family. And so I think it's important for race scholars to talk about how racism presents in transracially adopted families. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I love how you said, you know, racism, it permeates. Um, we sometimes can see it in other areas, right? So policing, right, being one really big area that's gotten a lot of attention, um, and even in healthcare, right? Um, but for family, we often just everyday thinking, we're like, oh, it's just, it's just family, right? <laughs> like, it's just the people, you know, in our household or extended family, and we think about it as very separate. Um, from kind of all these other things that are happening, right? Family as this kind of safe haven. Um, so I like how you talk about how even, you know, our personal lives, even families, you know, is not separate um, from the reach of racism and what that really means for adoptive families in particular. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about that? That's right. So racism touches everything. It touches all of us. And when it comes to adoptive families, um, you know, uh, studies have, you know, there are over 40 years of studies that talk about the impact of, of, of race on transracially adopted families. And I'm really interested in this. I'm an adult child of transracial adoption, and I've always been really interested in this idea of, of, of race and family, particularly with particularly within this one type of family, transracially adopted families. Mm -hmm. And the data is really clear. It shows that for children of transracial adoption, that children do fairly well in terms of educational attainment, in terms of self-esteem. Um, they have strong connections with their family, but they tend to struggle with issues of identity and belongingness. And this is true across racial and ethnic groups. And so I've, and, and the data, again, is really strong, really robust over many years. And I, I became interested not, not so much um, in the experiences of the children, 
but mm -hmm. in the experiences of the parents. So for seeing this sort of this pattern with children over and over and over again, um, across different racial and ethnic groups, across generations, what's going on with the parents? Mm. Right? What are the parents not getting in order to make sure that their children are as healthy as possible mm. in every aspect of their lives? So I decided to study the parents of transracial adoptees. Yes, I love this because as you mentioned, we have so much research, decades and decades of research looking at the children. And yet we know very little about the parents, right? Who are playing this major role in, in if the children are okay. Um, so I love that you're focusing on the parents to really understand, okay, hey, what's, you know, what's going on with the parents? Um, you know, what are they doing? How are they doing? And so with your examination of adoptive parents, tell me more about, about that. Well, so what I decided to do is I decided to attend culture camps. And culture camps are these organizations that support uh, transracially adoptive families. Um, and they promote sort of the well-being of families and in particular the adopted child by trying to lessen the distance between birth culture and adopted culture. Okay. And they okay. do that in lots of different sorts of ways and various sort of camps and organizations do it in different ways. But this is a resource, a really important resource that parents could use mm -hmm. to learn more about how they can best promote the well-being, the racial and ethnic well-being of their child. Okay. And when you say culture camp, so is it an actual camp? Like when I think camp, I think we're camping, we're like in the woods, we're, you know, doing, I don't know, on the lake, we're canoeing, we're, um, so tell me more about exactly what a culture camp is. Okay. Well, these are such interesting organizations. They sort of arose back in the 1980s and they're, they're organizations meant again to help and promote the health and well-being of transracially adopted mm -hmm. families. Um, and so the camps I went to, I went to different types of camps. I went to one camp that was in like the mountains and it was in a lodge and people mm -hmm. stayed in cabins and they would canoe during the days and horseback ride. <laughs> okay. Um, that was real, that, that was sort of a, a really an ideal sort of traditional camp setting. Mm -hmm. But I've been to camps that have been in people's homes. Oh, okay. You know, like someone would host sort of a, a culture camp in their home from 4 to 9 p.m. on a Friday night. Ah, okay. Sort of a camp. So there are all different types of camps, um, all different types of formulas. Um, some camps are super expensive and you have to fly there and, you know, um, and rent a car and drive up to the camp. And other camps are just, you know, they're, you know, in, in someone's, someone's house downtown. Mm -hmm. So, um, but all of the camps sort of have the same theme, and that is to help expose children and families to birth culture. Ah, uh, okay. And then how do they do that in the camp? Like, are there activities? Do they have experts? Like, what, walk us through some of that. So the smaller culture camps, the ones that people might host in their homes, they might have a, me a special meal that they prepared that right that reflects a cultural background uh they might have a storyteller that that they found that will come to the house to sort of tell stories about a, a particular uh, birthplace uh, they might have sort of arts and crafts and it's a chance for the, the kids to get together and, and interact and it's also a chance for the parents to get together and interact and talk about their experiences in raising children of color and other camps, they're sort of big, they're also these big sort of corporate 
um, organizations where, you know, they have programming for children and programming for parents. Um, they'll bring in people, uh, experts. So they'll bring in uh, scholars. Um, I've been to camps where they brought in, you know, music producers. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> parents were interested in like getting their kids into the, you know, into the music industry. And so, <laughs> So, um, so camps would bring in music producers. Often camps will bring in folks to help with issues of hair and skin. Oh, okay. um, and so there are some things that are useful and some things that I think are probably a little less useful. Um, <laughs> but yeah, camps just sort of run the gamut. And um, some parents are really lucky. They have the resources to go to these really big camps that, that are able to uh, give them lots of different kinds of information. But, but even the smaller camps, I think, are very helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sounds that way. So for these camps, because I know you said they're for um, typically for white adoptive parents of children of color. And so are these camps like specific to um, maybe different birth countries or different types of culture? Mm-hmm. Well, this varies too. So I've been to some camps that only focus on uh, a black domestic placements. Okay. I've been to some camps that focus on uh, placements from children from China, mm-hmm. uh, Guatemala. Um, and I've been to other camps where that are sort of, they call, they sort of um, call themselves a rainbow camps where mm-hmm. there's just lots of different types of, you know, lots of different birth cultures represented in the families that attend those sorts of camps. So again, these are very different sorts of structures. Mm-hmm. All right. So different types of structures, but still all getting kind of that same overarching program of exposing both children and parents to their birth cultures of their children, or even just providing a space for um, parents and families to kind of feel like, hey, this is normal. It's not just, you know, me and my one family that's kind of this different maybe type of family formation. But look, it's all of these adoptive families together. That's right. And, you know, it's it's. It is a positive thing um, because studies show that when parents encourage and participate in um, cultural events and knowledge from their children's birthplace, that those children are more likely to incorporate that identity throughout, you know, uh, as children and also into adulthood. Mm -hmm. So these are positive things. Mm -hmm. And so with the parents that you... um, or at the center of your study, um, what were what were some of your findings? What were you talking about? And then what did you kind of find? So I was able to interview parents. I was able to sort of find parents and say, look, would you do an interview with me? I'd like to talk more about your experiencing, your experiences raising children of color. And so lots of folks were able to interview with me. I did, I talked to 56 parents, wow. you, know, you know, throughout um, gathering the data. And pa- what I found, several things. One, parents desperately love their children. And two, the white parents in my sample tended to be or feel very unprepared when it came to issues of racial socialization and children of color. And that's why they were there. So they, you know, they appreciated the food and they appreciated the art. They appreciated the storytelling and the, you know, the heri- the, 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 the sort of heritage uh, through clothes, mm-hmm. but what they really wanted was help in learning how to help manage this identity, their child's identity that was very different from theirs and that they had no experience with. Mm, yeah. So did, were they able to get that kind of, I guess, knowledge or training through these camps? You know, that's something that's really hard to provide. Mm-hmm. So I would say probably most parents would say no. 
Mm. But it was good that the parents talked about the value of the camp, um, uh, particularly in providing um, associations for their children. You know, so parents would go to these camps year after year after year, and their children would come and they would build bonds with other kids that were there a year after year. And the parents talked about the value in that. They talked about the value in having peers that struggled the same way they did. But really, the camps that I uh, interviewed at were not really good at helping, it's sort of the nuance, so of helping parents manage their children's status. So you know, parents would come to me and say things like, what do I do when, when my kid's teacher um, thinks that they're not bright? How do I deal with sort of these low expectations that are really insidious over time? Well, the, camp, the camps really weren't equipped to talk about those things. They were equipped to talk about hair. And that's important too, right? But they're sort of a layer, a more, uh, again, that deals with sort of the, insidious, the, the insidiousness of racism that camps, I think, haven't been able to move into those areas of, of, specific, of specificity yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then as you were talking to parents, and I think it's so great that they even had these questions, right, that they were really thinking about it um, in this way, even though maybe they weren't able to get the resources yet through these camps, that they were thinking through like, okay, I know that my child is experiencing things differently than I'm experiencing them. And I still want to be there, you know, and try to help navigate through this process, not only of race, but racism. Um, so in what ways were parents trying, I guess, trying to deal with these issues? Well, a lot of the ways that parents dealt with them were just, they sort of were just kind of stumbling along. Mm-hmm. So they would, they would do things like, you know, uh, uh, they would do things like take their children, uh, take their children to uh, particular communities for hair care, right? Mm-hmm. So instead of taking their kids to you know, the, the place where they get their hair cut, uh-huh. the place on the corner, they would actually ask people, like, where should I take my child to get their hair done? And they would actually move, like go to a black barber shop or a black stylist and, and actually take the effort and make the effort to sort of find mm-hmm. um, a, a places that could help support their children and, give, and, and meet the needs of their children. Um, some parents would change churches. They said, you know, we've been at this church our entire lives and we find that it is not supportive and it's not, um, it, it does not promote our family anymore. And so we have found a different church and sort of began to, and these parents would begin to sort of, to worship in a whole different way based on what they thought was the best sort of option for their children. So I, I had a family that um, had lots of resources, but they actually moved. They sold their house that was in the suburb and they moved to a more diverse area of the city. Mm. Uh, most families couldn't do something like that. But, you know, these are families that really are trying. And I understand that these are families that self-select into these camps. Mm. So they certainly are not representative of, you know, of transracially adoptive families at large. So mm. this is a, a particular segment of these, of these types of families. 
Right. Um, but I'm still, you know, very happy to hear about this proactiveness, even among these families, right? Even if it's not, you know, adoptive families as a whole, um, seeing this shift of parents who are really concerned about, but also interested in their child's both heritage culture, but then also how race is operating within their family. Uh, because that all always has not been the case, right? So through different time periods of, uh, you know, the practice of adoption, there have been different approaches. So initially being, you know, oh, it doesn't matter what their heritage culture was or what country they were born in or what uh, we might say their racial group membership is, you know, it'll be okay, right? It's family, it's love, it's this, you know, safe place of belonging. Uh, but we know that race matters, um, in this country and in this world. And we know that racism, as you mentioned in the beginning, permeates every aspect you know, of our lives. So for these parents um, that you were able to speak with, um, did they talk about any strategies that maybe they had developed in order to kind of help their children, thinking even you know, about difference or even about maybe racial teasing that their children might experience? So I think that there are there there were strategies, particularly by age group. Mm -hmm. So the younger the children were, sort of the the more the more uh, secure a handle that parents sort of thought they had, mm -hmm. right? So they would say things like, "Well, what I do is I make sure that um, that I have lots of things in the house that address my child's uh, uh, that address and promote my child's sort of racial and ethnic identity." So children's books, art, um, uh, music, food, um, and people would actually sort of transform their homes, right? Mm -hmm. And they sort of, I saw pictures of, of one family's home and it, it looked like a museum, actually, all the things that they had acquired mm -hmm. from their child's birthplace. Um, and so that is sort of, that is one strategy. As the children get older and as they become teenagers, mm -hmm. that strategy doesn't work as well. <laughs> Children are, are less interested in sort of being insulated at home and they, they need to learn how to deal with, um, with disadvantages that they are bound to face. Mm -hmm. right? um, and particularly racial episodes that they are bound to face. And one of the, I guess, I know you asked for strategies, but, but one of the things that, that I found, a pattern that I found over and over again, that parents did not have a strategy for was how to help their children deal with these sort of racialized episodes. Mm -hmm. So when their children came home and they told their parents, like someone called me a name or a teacher said this about me or, um, or I, you know, I asked some so-and-so out on a date and they said that they would never date someone like me because of my race, you know, and parents were just, they were just flabbergasted. They didn't know what to do or what to say or how to help. Um, and so I do know that that even though parents seem to parents believe that strategies for younger children are very um, are efficient, that as the children get older, their strategies tend to fail. Mm, yeah, so I was talking earlier about how adoption is a lifelong process. It's not just the actual act of, you know, legal adoption, but all these kind of experiences over a lifetime. And I think that is really what you're talking about, right? So we can think about little kids and some of the things that they might experience. And we feel like, oh, we can handle this, even if it's a type of bullying, right? We feel much better at <laughs> dealing with that. But as children become teenagers or even young adults, all these different interactions that you may not think 
think about like the dating one, right? People that might not even come to mind as like, oh, someone wouldn't want to date my son or, you know, my daughter. And it's because of, you know, race um, or just other kind of smaller interactions that we take for granted that we don't have to think about, or especially that maybe white folks don't have to think about in this kind of racial way. Um, so yeah, so parents really struggling with that over time, like trying to adapt to some of those. Um, did you find any differences in how the parents you spoke to were thinking about race and racism um, based on what, what their child's racial group membership was? So were there difference among maybe adoptive parents of black children, adoptive parents of Asian children, adoptive parents of Latino children? I did. And, and I, I, yeah, and what I found wasn't surprising because it sort of fit into a racial hierarchy mm -hmm. in our country. But what I found was that when I talked to parents who adopted children of Asian descent, oftentimes they would say things like, you know, it's not like I adopted a black kid. Oh. Um, and they would actually say those things. Like, <laughs> you know, you know, this has been hard and and I try really hard to make sure that 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 my child's well-being is is prioritized. But it's just, it's different. It's almost like having a white child. And I had parents tell me that quite often. Wow. Yeah. You, you did see the sort of interesting hierarchy that took place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I, I was going to say, I, I, you know, I love that you bring that up because as, you know, at being an Asian adoptee and thinking about how even my parents um, who are white, how they addressed or rather did not address race. Um, and we know from the research that in many instances, adoptive parents are kind of steered towards Asian children as this kind of, oh, you know, you won't have to experience or deal with the racial quote unquote baggage, right? Of if you are adopting black children and how Asian children have been really deracialized or made kind of safe um, for white parents as if Asian Americans aren't experiencing racism. Um, but I think it makes it that much more difficult to even talk about it, as you said, right? That is correct. As your own work shows, you know, um, that that there's sort of this, this interesting erasure that happens that is quite damaging to mm -hmm. adopted children when so the, this idea that um, that that heritage and racial identity is is you know is reserved for some but not all children. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I think that story. Can I tell a story about what happened at one of my camps? Yes, yes, we would love a story. So I was visiting with a mother, um, and uh, we were you know we were sitting at the table, sort of visiting. I think she had done an interview with me, and it was after the interview. And we were talking about her son. She was a white mother. She had adopted this little um, African-American boy. We'll call him Sam. And he was just beloved at this camp. Everyone <laughs> knew Sam. Everyone adored Sam. And so she and I were talking, and she was just beaming with pride talking about mm -hmm. Sam. And a second mother kind of heard us and came up to the table. And so we, we, she sat down, and we began to talk. And she said to the first mother, she said, now, is, are you Sam's mother? And the first mother, you know, said, yes, you know, I'm Sam's mother. <laughs> and, um, and the second mother said, well, he sure is active, isn't he? And the first mother said, yeah, he has a whole lot of energy. And then the second mother said, well, is that because he was a crack baby? Said oh, it. my gosh. Yep. So even within, <laughs> even within, so again, this idea that race touches us. So mm -hmm. even within a culture camp where we are talking about culture and promoting um, the uh, you know, children's background and birth culture 
and birth heritage, even in these you know, spaces that are set aside, um, race, racism can, can enter. So that was a really hard conversation to be a part of. And it was strange as, as a researcher to try to sort of watch that play out and to know exactly what, it, what I should be doing at that time. Wow, I could not even imagine. Oh my goodness. Uh, So what did Sam's mom say? So I don't even know. So Sam's mom was very upset Mm -hmm. and, um, and, you know, and just sort of said, you know, how, you know, how could you say that? How dare you say that? And one of the camp directors sort of saw that this was happening and came and sort of, you know, took the, the women away into another room. And I guess, help them manage that. But, but that was something I've always remembered that that actually happened um, with these two mothers who were both there. We both had children mm-hmm. at, the, at this culture camp. The second mother had, uh, her child was not a black child, okay. but it wasn't adopted. It was a trans, she did have a transracially adopted child. So she, they were there for the same reasons and sort of ideas of race still seeped in mm-hmm. in a really profound way. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking about, you know, Sam's mom and how, you know, what she was thinking, but also how she was able to respond. Right. So thinking about how, you know, even adoptive parents, what, you know, how prepared do they feel about responding to comments such as those, right, that they're receiving. So in this case, not things that their kids are maybe experiencing or that they come home with and, you know, share with them, but even from, you know, other parents, other adoptive parents, where they, you know, maybe are feeling like, oh, we should feel like this, these are my people, right? We have some shared understanding. And now to have someone, you know, say, oh, well, actually, no, we don't, we're not the same, right? Yeah. yeah, they talk about that a lot. They talk about um, have, you know, the parents themselves talk about having to manage their own friendships and how uh, their decision to adopt transracially or transnationally impacts their relationships with friends and their families. They talk about a lot about how to, about having to manage their families mm-hmm. and sort of the, the racialized ideas that their families might have about their children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So in that case, um, did the parents have any strategies or tactics for dealing with kind of navigating their friendships or even family relationships? Well, they would cut, I had, uh, you know, parents reported sort of cutting, you know, friendships off, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, with family, that's a little different because it's harder to cut family off. And so they would talk about things like, you know, really managing family time having limited family time, um, uh, having rules about, like, what are we going to talk about during family Uh, time? What's off limits? What what will we not be discussing? Um, And what are the consequences for discussing things mm -hmm. that could be hurtful? Um, And so sort of talking about that beforehand and sort of laying down the law, you know, before they would go to family gatherings. Mm-hmm. You know, families do that a lot, but mostly about <laughs> politics, not about, you know, whether or not your child should be a member mm-hmm. of this particular family. So, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, and, and parents talked about the, you know, the sadness associated with that. So much sort of, to think about. Yeah. I mean, these parents, you know, and again, you know, sort of, you know, oftentimes, you know, um, people critical of transracial placements will talk about parents as white saviors and, you know, uh, colonizers. Um, And there are things to be critical about when it comes to transracial adoption. But I think that since transracial adoption, since these placements are so common, 
really probably the thing to do is to figure out how to make them work mm -hmm. um, so that children are supported in every way, you mm -hmm. know, including issues of, of, of identity and belongingness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So thinking about that, thinking about kind of how we can, how families can think about making it work. Um, based on your research, do you have any suggestions or recommendations for things that whether culture camp should be thinking about, or even adoptive parents or even families where there's adoption kind of present in their families? What are some things that folks should be thinking about or doing? Well, I feel like that's such a hard questions. And I've asked myself that so many times, sort of what is the application? What's the praxis here? Mm -hmm. And I just think it's so, it's so difficult because the strategy, you know, the, the strategies that I would think of sort of um, are sort of based on this idea of, of rooting out racism, which is just next to impossible to do. Yeah. Right. In our, in our society. And so, you know, things like you know, I do think that there have been positive movement. You know, you mentioned that there was a time in the adoption uh, industry where sort of racial differences were not talked about. This idea that, you know, love is enough. So we've moved far away from that. And we know that talking about racial difference and racial advantage and disadvantage is really important um, in, in family structure. And so encouraging families to have these hard discussions, even if they sort of don't know how to do it, Mm -hmm. Because when we, when we, what we know about white racial socialization and parents is that parents sort of don't do a lot of racial socialization with their children because they don't have to. Mm -hmm. but, but we know that, um, that parents of color are really good at racially socializing their children. And so there's a lot to learn from mm -hmm. communities of color and the, and the, the parental techniques uh, in those communities that I think could transfer to white adoptive parents. Um, so I think that that's really important. Also, I have, I'm starting a new study where I'm going to be revisiting some of my parents. It's, it's, it's been about 10 years since, since my last interviews. The average age of children for the parents that I interviewed was 13 years old. So now those children are 23 years old. Mm -hmm. And parents have, I suspect, have learned a lot about parenting and about parenting children of color in the past decade. And so I'm going to be, I'm going to, to try to contact them and learn and, and sort of get that information from them. Because if they have been able to pick up uh, useful and helpful information, then that's something that we could share with new parents or parents who are in the process now of parenting young children. Well, thank you so much for sharing um, with us about your research. And I'm so excited to find out what these parents have learned, you know, over a decade, right? So I'll be very excited to see those results. Thank you. Thank you. I think it's going to be great. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited too about what we can learn. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being here with me this morning. I love learning about your research and best of luck on this new study. Thanks so much. Wow, what a great conversation we've had this morning with two experts, with Dr. Katie Bozek and Dr. Carla Gore. I think it's so key what really both of them talked about, just this lifelong process of adoption, not only for adoptees, but also for adoptive parents. So I think even for folks who aren't in adoptive families or don't have adoption, you know, directly impacting their families, I think we can still take the lessons um, that both Dr. Bozek and Dr. Gore talked about in thinking about 
families, thinking about open communication, and thinking about having even what may be difficult conversations. So for today's positive note, I want to share a quote from Dr. Brene Brown, and she says, vulnerability is not winning or losing. It's having the courage to show up and be seen when we have no control over the outcome. Vulnerability is not weakness. It's our greatest measure of courage. And I think today we really touched on this idea of vulnerability, especially in our families and how important these feelings of belonging and connection are. I'm Sanaa, and this is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'll see you all back here next Saturday morning at 9 a.m.